that same level of rigor around the quality of the data, the reproducibility, the quality of the results ultimately is much harder to achieve um, in the chaos of human existence. And then in clinical trials, our goal is to say, is the drug safe and is it effective? And we're gathering that data in the midst of delivering healthcare, in the midst of human lives. So ultimately the challenge is much higher, I think because you have a signal to noise challenge that's greater inherently than science in other domains. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? On today's show, our guest is Dr. Michelle Longmire, who is the founder and CEO of Medible. Dr. Longmire is mission-driven to accelerate the development of new therapies for disease. She's a Stanford-trained physician scientist, and she's identified critical barriers to drug development. So what she did was she founded Medible to pioneer a new category of clinical trial technologies that removes the traditional roadblocks to patient participation and really accelerates the research process. Medible is now the industry leader in decentralized and direct-to-patient research. It serves patients in clinical trials in over 30 languages, 40 countries, and across all therapeutic areas. She has raised over $300 million in venture capital, and they have about a $2.1 billion valuation. Pretty impressive. Dr. Longmire has received a recognition as a leading innovator and businesswoman, including being named one of 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. And last year, she made Inc. Magazine's top 100 female founders list. Don't forget to sign up for our exclusive newsletter that we created for you each week. Here you'll find things that we mentioned in the show, articles about stuff we love, and other interesting tidbits that we want to share with you. So how can you get the newsletter? You can follow us on Twitter at DesignLabPod. There on the top of the post, you will see the link. Or you can just go to bit.ly backslash newsletter. And as a reminder, support us. And you can do this by rating us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So right there on your phone, open up these apps, go to the review section, give us five stars, or you can leave us a review. Right now, you can only do that on Apple Podcasts. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Michelle Longmire. Dr. Michelle Longmire, thank you for joining us on Design Lab. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I'm so stoked for this conversation. I've been waiting months to talk to you. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. In 2018, Fast Company listed you as one of the 100 most creative people in business. And I was curious to know, where does that creativity come from? Oh, great question. You know, I think... For me, growing up in really a, a household that fostered you know, creativity and exploration and discovery, largely from the lens of science, I believe that the aha moment, which is generally driven by creativity, is probably the like highest level of satisfaction in you know a couple of seconds that anyone can have. So, you know, I think in general, 
my creativity probably comes from the way that I was raised by my parents, both of whom were scientists, you know, living in a community like Los Alamos, where discovery is really the kind of currency by which people are trying to derive value for the world. And just ultimately the incredible satisfaction that creativity provides when you get to a breakthrough. And I like how you link creativity and science because that is not something that is a common relationship or linkage in people's minds. And and like Los Alamos, for people who don't know, is like the epicenter of American science, right? And and I was doing my research on you and your mom was an expert like on plutonium and your father worked on the human genome project and your grandfather worked on electromagnetic pulse theory. And would you yeah. say they were creativity was an important part of their work? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, scientific breakthrough, it requires such creativity. And when you look at you know, the history, say, of Los Alamos, where you had Oppenheimer and Feynman and Fermi and, you know, a number of thinkers who really largely were approaching problems from a theoretical basis. And so it was all about novel ideas. And this is the real kind of culture, I think, of Los Alamos, where you have novel ideas that are driving the science and really driving the way that people are trying to innovate. So I think from my mom and my dad and my grandfather, you know, who was very fundamental to the development of the hydrogen bomb, that culture in that world drives you to value. What can you really do to come up with something that's novel? What are the ideas that are either have not been actually formulated or are unexplored? And I think that this is definitely a big theme from my life and my childhood. Did you feel that medical training uh, added to that creativity or was it like a, for me, cause it was a very anti-creative process. I felt like my creative soul yeah. died during <laughs> med school and residency training and even, yeah. even going into academic medicine as a yeah. assistant professor and yeah. it woke up later in my career. So I think people who are in medicine, I think struggle to be creative. That's a really interesting point. And certainly I've experienced you know, the kind of lack of creativity and the need for rote procedural approach in medicine. And in the first two years of medical school, where you're sitting in a classroom and you're memorizing things, I thought, wow, this is just so unintellectual and really kind of not creative. How am I applying my deductive reasoning and my you know passion for science? But then what I found later was that it was that foundation of knowledge, kind of similar to Feynman, who's going to leverage calculus and his understanding of physics to come up with new ideas, that I think the foundation of knowledge is what has made me an exceptional entrepreneur in healthcare. I definitely think that there is an application of that knowledge on the day-to-day that we're going to be leveraging best practices and we're going to be applying a lot of the procedural approaches that we know are tried and true. You almost divorce yourself from that creative process in a sense. But I, I still believe that when, and I would love your perspective on this, but when we're faced with that patient where we really don't know exactly what's going on, we're tapping into a fund of knowledge, intuition. And then I think in some cases, really creative application of the other patients we've seen who are not exactly like that. And that's sometimes where we're able to come up with 
the diagnoses or the solutions that are needed in those rare exceptions where you don't know exactly what's going on or what to do. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I feel like because medicine is, we never have enough time and it's always, we're, we're always putting out fires that in the moment, I think it's hard to be creative when taking care of patients in a crowded emergency department that I don't think it's well, how am I going to be creative now? But there are times when I could not be in that busy moment and isn't there a space or opportunity for me to reimagine ways that we deliver care. And I feel like that space, we don't have much of that either in clinical training or in current practice of where we could where we could have a break from the chaos and have a safe space to be able to reimagine how we deliver care. I totally agree and I do think it's an underutilization of the fund of knowledge and also the deep understanding that people have, because I would guess that a lot of physicians, I think people look at, you know, kind of my path and they think, wow, that's so different, but really it's simply taking that fund of knowledge and the experience and then leveraging it for something new. And I do think that it's something that physicians and healthcare workers are really uniquely positioned to do, but it's not on the current path. Mm -hmm. I want to later get into your own personal journey, which is so fascinating, but let's talk about what you currently do right now. So you're the CEO of a pretty freaking cool company called Medible, and you are reimagining or redesigning how clinical trials work. So I want to talk about first, why is it so freaking hard to make a new drug or therapy? That's is such a great question. And it is extremely hard. So when we look at science, it's all about your know, quality of data and ultimately reproducibility of data to validate the hypothesis. When you look at bench science, there's a very high degree of reproducibility in this confined environment where you're working with test tubes and sequencing machines, you know, all of the things that make bench science something that has a high degree of reproducibility. That same level of rigor around the quality of the data, the reproducibility, the quality of the results ultimately is much harder to achieve in the chaos of human existence. So, you know, you're taking this concept of, we've got a hypothesis, we have to scientifically validate it. And then in clinical trials, our goal is to say, is the drug safe and is it effective? And we're gathering that data in the midst of delivering healthcare, in the midst of human lives. So ultimately the challenge is much higher. I think because you have a signal to noise challenge that's greater inherently than science on in other domains. And you have this big mission to reduce the time it takes to make a new drug or therapy by something like it takes like 12 years on average. Right. And you want to exactly. bring cut down that in half to six years. Like how are you doing that at Medible? Sure. So when you look at the number of human diseases, there's over 10,000 rare diseases alone each year at the most, we're able to achieve about 55 drug approvals. So when you oh, look at that's the so pace, depressing. I know, exactly. <laughs> so when you look at the pace of innovation, 
for treating human disease, ultimately really reducing human suffering that's caused by human disease, our current pace is at like 200 years to being able to provide a viable treatment for the majority over majority of human conditions. So at Medibol, and I think it's really driven in part by my experience as a physician caring for patients with rare disease and just experience as a human, time is the most precious thing we all have. And we all value our time in our life. The quality of that time, our ability to spend it with friends and family and enjoy the time is so important. And we know when people are suffering from illness, it diminishes in some cases, not only the length of their life, but the quality of their life. So at Medible, we're mission-driven to enable effective therapies to reach patients faster. So taking that 55 drugs a year to improve human lives versus the tens of thousands of diseases that need treatments, we think that accelerating the development of new therapies is really important. And the way that we're doing that is by removing many of the process barriers to clinical development. And ultimately our goal is, as you mentioned, to bring it from 12 to six or bring it from 50 drugs approved to maybe even 500, which sounds audacious, but I, I say that because it's not that we want more drugs that don't work, but ultimately right now there are very few shots on goal because the process is so long and so expensive and the science of creating new promising therapies is abundant, but our ability to take them through the clinical trial process, it has an extreme bottleneck. There could be some researchers working on chronic disease, for example, that a patient may have that is rare, but maybe very lethal, but then it would take still from like what you're saying, 12 years from like that bench research to actual, like a pill or a therapy for that patient. And I think I was looking at your website and one way that you do this is by decentralizing clinical trials. So what, what the heck does that mean? Decentralizing clinical trials? Sure. So as a physician scientist at Stanford, I was caring for patients with this disease called systemic sclerosis or scleroderma. And working with my mentor, Dr. Fiorentino, we would see people from all over the world. The, the challenge is that these were people who either lived near Palo Alto uh, or the Stanford campus, or had the means of traveling to get expert care. Mm -hmm. And it's through those kind of key um, opinion leaders or expert clinicians generally who are leading the clinical trials and who can provide not just the therapies that are the new and upcoming approved, but also the cutting edge investigational drugs. So what I observed is and had an idea, well, technology could break down this barrier in a big way we could enable patients to participate in clinical research, have access to this care remotely and not have to come all the way to Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. And this would open the door to participation in a really big way and would provide those patients access to these new cutting edge therapies. So that's what decentralized clinical trials are. It's all about removing the geographic barriers, removing the procedural barriers, making clinical trials local to the patient, centered around the patient versus centered around maybe the five expert doctors who do this anywhere in the world. Yeah. 
it's, it's kind of like instead of getting in a car and going to a restaurant, but using an app on your phone and getting that meal exactly. delivered to your house. And isn't that one of the biggest barriers for patients getting into a clinical trial is just like the transport, like getting to one of these like elite ivory tower academic medical centers, like a Stanford or a Harvard or a Mayo and because people have to travel not only to a different city, but sometimes a different state to get yeah. enrolled in that trial. Yeah. I mean, I believe the biggest barrier is actually awareness, but I think that the second biggest barrier is this geographic issue and that through decentralized clinical trials, we can really improve the access. Now we also need to tackle the awareness you know, how can we enable patients and people who are looking for a better therapy to think about research as an access point for new and cutting edge treatments? But yes, definitely. I mean, I think you probably see this in your practice of medicine, right? Everything is limited by the access to that care, whether it's financial or the location of the physicians, but decentralized trials really tackles this head on. How do patients right now find out about a clinical trial that's going on for their disease that they might have right now? Yeah, I would say that this is a generally pretty broken process. And so right now you could Google clinical trials. I think you could go to clinicaltrials.gov. It's not designed for a person who's seeking objective information about what's right for them to really receive digestible and accessible information, the current process. Now, there are companies who are recruiting for clinical trials. In general, they are providing an, an important solution, but it, it's also kind of biased by the companies they're working with and partnering with. I think that for us to really drive not only awareness, but the right type of education, we need to be able to provide objective and clear, digestible information to people about what clinical trial might be right for them. And, and that is a resource I think is largely missing from the world. And clinical trials aren't probably something that the public thinks about on a day-to-day -day basis, right? It's an issue that has been um, elevated more during the pandemic with the development of the mRNA vaccines, but most people probably don't think about the importance of clinical trials, but we need them to get new therapies. I mean, yeah. it is an essential part. And in one aspect of clinical trials that you are working on is clinical trial diversity. And that is a health equity issue. And can you talk about that? Absolutely. Oftentimes until you're the person who needs new investigational medicine, I think people feel that clinical trials are philanthropic. Like I'm doing this to advance the understanding of the disease. And there's definitely those people. But I think when you're looking at oncology or you're looking at rare disease, clinical trials are actually, in some cases, the first line therapy. And so the access is vital for these people. And, and that's wait, wait, when, wait, what does that mean? The first line, like, because there's like so, nothing else out there, like the only right, way that by entering into exactly, a clinical trial, right. Or it might be the most promising thing, but you take a glioblastoma multiforme, a rare form of aggressive brain cancer, or you take, you know, pancreatic cancer, or you take an un, you know, cured or untreated genetic rare disease. It's really the research, the investigational drugs that in some cases are 
the most promising approach for that patient. Even in cases where you have a standard of care treatment, it might not have such great outcomes that people still would rather have an investigational and cutting edge therapy. So I would say that in, in many cases, way beyond what people realize, there is a proportion of patients where this is really a critical option. So there's that. And that's where it does become even more of a glaring health equity issue. And that the access to these therapies for all people is incredibly important. Now there's the access for the benefit of the person who's looking for something more promising than what's available. And of course, we don't know if it's more promising or not until that research effort is completed. But I can tell you that in the era of immunotherapy, in the area of new emerging genetic treatments, that there's a lot of promise in, the, in some of these therapies. The other part of how it relates to health equity is the use of that medication in the broader population should really reflect the population that's living with the disease so that we know if it's really safe and effective and we know who in whom it optimally treats the condition. So as long as research is not reflective of the diversity of the population of people living with this condition, we have a big health equity issue in the use of that medication more broadly. And there's some crazy stat out there, isn't it, of that with, if you look at clinical trials in terms of diversity, that over 90% are white and historically most of the clinical trials have been done on primarily on white men. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at the Framingham Heart Study, that's a great example of this kind of overarching blind spot in a really critical blind spot. One could even say beyond a blind spot in terms of what it really signals. And absolutely, clinical trials really lack the diversity that we see in the population. And I'd say beyond that, they come nowhere near the reflection of the population in general, nor do they really start to tackle, and we need to, the population of people living with the condition, which may be slightly different in some cases due to health equity issues more broadly than the reflection of that condition in the broader population or or than the the broader population itself. So yeah, I think diversity in clinical research is a big problem and it's something that companies like Medible are extremely passionate about. We want these therapies to be accessible to everyone. We want everyone to have clinical research as a care option, and we want the science to be maximally beneficial. And that requires that we have diverse and reflective populations in the research efforts themselves. Mm. And I want to just uh, congratulate you and your team for this tremendous growth that you had on your, during the pandemic, you received a bolus of funding, like something like $300 million, they have like a $2.1 billion valuation. Like, wh- why do you think your company saw such growth during the pandemic? Sure. When we look at the development of drugs and you're you know, a big pharmaceutical company, you're investing over $2 billion on average in getting that therapy through the research process. So there is a huge resistance to, um, anything new or different because an established path is one they know. And given the stakes and the investment, there's very little appetite to deviate from that path, which was in general, non-decentralized clinical trials. 
the pandemic hit and it really forced um, innovation to take hold. And I say that because sites all over the world, clinics all over the world shut down. And immediately our approach, decentralized clinical trials, was required to keep the research efforts underway and for any new therapy that would be emerging. Now, the window that that applied to was actually pretty short. But what it did is it enabled the pharmaceutical and life science industry to become comfortable with a new methodology. And what we saw is the clinic started opening back up and we put in social distancing, we put in masking, we knew ways to keep clinics safe, that there were proven methodologies that had been rapidly adopted. And suddenly these methodologies were able to show pretty extreme benefit. And we're going to be announcing the results of a rigorous research study that shows the real benefit to timelines and cost of drug development here in the next couple of weeks. But I can say that it's multiples above the standard approach and the benefit. And as, as the world kind of opened their eyes to that in life sciences, now we've seen very rapid adoption of this methodology of providing access to people in the comfort of their own home, enabling clinical trials to be something that's not limited to these very rare and kind of isolated institutions and something that has much broader access to people all over the world. And so the pandemic was an accelerator, I'd say by five years. Wow. But what's been important is it's not just a pinch hitting solution for a point in time that is unprecedented. What I think is really important, and it's kind of like, you know, other technologies that have been able to be adopted at scale through this, there is, we've been able to show the benefit <clears throat> against the standard approach the, or the prior standard approach. Mm. And it's such a time saver for patients. So if you are, you know, a busy single parent living two hours from a academic medical center exactly. to enroll in the clinical trial, like you don't have to make that four hour round trip anymore. You can like literally not leave your home for um, a good part of the trial. Is that right? Exactly. And I think it makes a huge difference to a lot of people, whether you're caring for a child who, you know, say we do a lot of um, clinical trials in hemophilia, mm -hmm. which is a bleeding disorder that affects all people, but is, is very problematic in childhood. And for these parents to have these new therapies, these cutting edge therapies, be able to provide that to their children, but not have to base their entire life around going into the clinics that may be far away on an ongoing basis is a game changer. I'd also say for parents themselves who need access to these therapies, but they're also trying to take care of patients or their children. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something that's very important. And it also enables us to reach more diverse populations who may not be living in the you know, direct vicinity of one of these research institutions. Totally. I want to pivot and talk about your, your own personal journey and path, because I think it's a fascinating one. I read a recent article about you called the unstoppable determination of Dr. <laughs> Michelle Longmire, which, which was thought was so cool. And I discovered some fascinating things like you, one, you were a dirt bike racer growing up, like a motorcycle. Is that right? Can you tell, can you tell me about that? Sure. So my dad is a really fascinating character. I just I'm so grateful to have had you know, someone who nothing was out of bounds in terms of understanding what we could do or having an experience, you know, that I'd say both in the category of how you would apply your mind and how you would apply your body. And my father also grew up in New Mexico as the son of Conrad Longmire, who was this famous hydrogen bomb developer and nuclear physicist. 
And my dad loved the outdoors. So he himself was a dirt bike racer and self-taught falconer. And so we would go into the deserts of New Mexico from the time I was like four years old, I had a dirt bike and I would race against the other kids on these little tiny dirt bikes. And my mom was always pretty worried, but she was still along in a big way. And we would go out there into the desert and race dirt bikes. And I won, I have trophies that were taller than I was at the time. And I'd say I was the person on the track who would go fast, but probably took a slightly different approach than some of the other little boy racers, but I would beat them because my (laughs) approach was very, very uh, much like go fast, don't crash. And I think they would go fast and crash and then I would beat them. <laughs> Were you the only girl? On, oh yeah. On- I was the only girl. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. And at a certain point you would see that there would be another girl out there, but the most, the most fun thing was when I would win, which wasn't infrequent. And that really was something, something that made people think, okay, things can change. This demographic of dirt bike racers can be different. Do you still race dirt bikes now? Do you have a motorcycle now? You know, I I got into competitive athletics and so it became harder and harder to do the dirt bike racing. I thought about getting into motocross when I moved to California and was at Stanford doing my dermatology residency, but it never really played out. You also did another male dominated sport of ice hockey growing up as well. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of like to really challenge myself. People feel like I, I hate to lose. That's actually not it. I just like to know the ultimate like boundary of your abilities. And I, and I found that as a child, um, you know, most of these sports were male dominated and it really was challenging to be out there, but in ice hockey, in the first couple of years I was playing, there was no women's league. So I played co-ed hockey. There was one other girl on the team and I was pretty ferocious and, and loved, loved, loved playing ice hockey. And later on there were women's leagues and I played in those, but yeah, the first three to four years of playing ice hockey was all co-ed and I was one of two girls. That's so cool. And I know you went on to go, go play varsity soccer during, during college. Yeah. And I, there might be a little parallel here. I was, when I was thinking about your journey of, you went from these male dominated sports to this male dominated industry of tech entrepreneurship, and you are yeah. a female CEO and a male dominated tech world, especially of Silicon Valley. What were some of the challenges of, of doing that? Yeah. I mean, it's like anything when you do not meet or are different than what people have seen before. I think there's inherently a much higher degree of resistance Mm. to people's understanding that you're capable of doing this. And in fact, maybe not only are you capable, but maybe you're actually better at it than many other people they've seen do it. And so definitely when you look at, you know, venture funding for women, it's only 2% or so of all venture funding in certain categories. And in Wait, that, that's just not only healthcare, that's just across the board. Yeah, it's 2% of all venture funding, maybe now slightly higher, goes to women. Female Un- CEOs. Unbelievable. Right. And if you look at women of color, it's far lower. Wow. So, you know, it is something. Now, I do think there's there the tides are changing, but what inspires me is that 
when you see someone you relate to do something, there is a subconscious shift in your awareness of two things. Hey, that might be something I'm interested in. And that's something I could do myself. And so I think those are really two important drivers of change. And I'd say the third part of it is proving to that, you know, entire world who's only seen a certain group of people do this, that these other groups of people can do it and do it really well. So I want to be a part of that change, the change that inspires people to know this is something they can do, the change that inspires people to think this might be something I want to do. I think founding a company and running a team that makes a big impact is an incredible opportunity in life. And then I think the third thing is bringing the broader awareness to the insiders that outsiders yeah. can do this and do it really well. And, and that's really you know important to me as I continue on this path. Well, congrats on getting through all those challenges. Cause I've hear crazy stories from my friends and colleagues who are female and they're part of a startup and they'll receive comments on their like looks and age that a man would never receive. I'm like shocked yeah. and horrified. I'm like, really? That person said that to you? I'm like, they would have never said that to me. And right. it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that I have found, and I've even seen this in my profession as a physician, I think that in the world of medicine, the culture is so driven by ethics that you see this less, but I, I still see it is that, you know, women in the way society values us, appearance is a bigger part of the value equation. And I don't think that's right. I think women and all people want to be valued for their attributes and what that capability is independent of other things they may or may not have. And I see, you know, even as a physician, it's interesting when you look at ZocDoc and things, you know, people comment, oh, easy on the eyes or, and I don't think they're doing that to men, but I I'd say that one thing I'd, I'd really love to see change and be a part of changing is let's value people in the category that they're trying to be relevant in for those qualities that make them successful there. And I think it's something that because of the societal framework is harder for women because we have this other pressure that we're valued by that's in my opinion, completely irrelevant in domains that aren't in that category. Yeah, so I think you, you hit on something that's very prevalent and I think it really needs to change so that everyone can be valued for the core skills that matter. There's this viral YouTube video of a Australian newscaster. I don't know if you've seen it, but co-anchors and it's a male and female and the female co-anchor, all the viewers comment on her dress, the way she looks. And the, and the guy says, no one comments on my suit. And what he did was every day for a year, he wore the same exact suit. It's like this navy blue suit Wow! and no one ever commented on that. And he should, and there's this clip that shows him like day after day wearing the same thing and no yep. one ever comment on his appearance. So yep. it, yep. Is, it is just a sad commentary of these societal expectations and these gender biases that, that yeah. Yep. was it scary leaving your position at Stanford as a dermatologist, which for those who aren't in medicine, being a dermatologist is like a dream job for many medical students. Like it is one of the hardest specialties to get into. I mean, there's road scholars trying to get into dermatology. And one of my best friends is a dermatologist. And he says, 
when you're trying to choose residents from medical school, it's they all are like the top of their class. So you kind of reach the apex of medicine and at an institution is one of the best institutions in the country on the planet. And was that scary to, to leave that coveted position and to go into a startup world? Because back then, you didn't know if you would succeed, right? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. The biggest concern or fear that I had was simply the love of what I was doing at Stanford. And really, I was working with Howard Chang, who was my research mentor, and I was seeing patients, and we were doing really interesting research in epigenetics, which I absolutely loved. And it was very intellectually gratifying. That my only fear was not being able to do that. It's interesting. I think my family was one that never really, my mom used to say, you can't eat prestige for breakfast. So the prestige element has never been a driver for me. Mm. I am really all about exploration, discovery, and invention. And what I found was that entrepreneurship didn't have barriers to how one could approach that. And it was really a test of me in a way that was very different than Stanford, where you have a lot of support. You have this whole infrastructure around you that's designed to help you be successful as a physician scientist. Um, Entrepreneurship you know, was a really big risk. There's no support. There's not even a dollar that you have, right? You're not being paid by anyone to do anything until you make that happen yourself. And that was very, very, very appealing to me. So yeah, I never have thought about the fact that I I think, you know, what you say is really interesting, but to me, it was really about where would I make the biggest impact? And was I be leaving an area where I could have had a really big impact? I heard you say in an interview, or maybe I read about it, we should be taking or tackling some of the hardest problems out there. That might be a paraphrase of, and I listened to that this morning and I thought I should be doing that. But sometimes it's so hard because these problems are so overwhelming. Like I'm working right now during the pandemic in an overcrowded hospital. And I wish I could take on, tackle on these big problems like reducing hospital overcrowding, right? Like not putting patients on stretchers for days in hospitals. It's just, but when I think about it's such a huge problem, but it seems so intractable, like how do you overcome that hurdle of being maybe uh, indifferent to it or just thinking, what what can I do uh, to tackle this huge problem? You know, I think when you look at what you're doing and everyone in healthcare is doing right now in the pandemic, you guys are tackling an extraordinarily hard problem for one. And I think that's just so real with the pressures on healthcare providers in the pandemic. But I understand what you're asking. And and what I see as a common thread in entrepreneurs, I'd say just inventors, is this irrational belief that you can really solve an extremely hard problem. And one of the things that motivates me is are people like Coltrane or Da Vinci or Darwin. It's not about the outcome. It's about the pursuit. And I think that is largely fueled by deep optimism and just a extreme passion for what you're pursuing. So I love that every day I'm able to work on an extremely hard problem. I think when you look at human progress, that real progress comes from this commitment to solving a problem that almost seems impossible. 
and entrepreneurs have this personality profile of extreme optimism that sets them up to take a lot of blows to the face that anyone else might be like, Hey, you know, the writing's on the wall. This isn't going to work. But I do believe when you stay in the game and you really focus on getting closer and closer to your goal, you'll make way more progress than you would ever have imagined. And I've seen that. And I think that's something that when you look at human history, you can see it in a lot of places. And I see it in, in what we've been able to do at Medible over the last couple of years. I think that's a great way to end. <laughs> Thank you for your inspiring journey. Thank you for uh, coming on. And we appreciate the work that you're doing to redesign how we make therapeutics. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for everything you're doing to raise awareness around design. You know, I think it's the experience that people take away and the way we design things really is what leaves people with an emotional experience, the way we design and treat things and treat people. So thank you for the work you do. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Michelle Longmire. You can find her on Twitter at LongmireMD. That's spelled A-L-O-N-G-M-I-R-E-M-D. And sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on Twitter at DesignLabPod. Or you can go to bit.ly backslash newsletter. And you can reach out to me by Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And remember to rate us both on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week.